Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award-winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. If you want to learn useful, practical how-tos of weight loss, exercise science, nutrition, or just how to optimize your time in the gym and life, this show is for you. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Project Fitness Podcast. Today we sit down with someone very unique. Today we sit down with a board-certified cardiologist, someone who actually teaches and practices culinary medicine and is also a professional chef. This author of, of books such as The Fallacy of a Calorie is also an award-winning show host, Dr. Mike Cooks. Project Fitness Podcast welcomes Dr. Mike. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, delighted to be here with you today. Well, it's great to have you on board, my friend. You are talking to people who are into exercise, into fitness, whether they train people on a daily basis or they train themselves. And you know what we do when we train? We also eat. <laughs> And, and you are a very unique professional. Could you go into a little bit more example of exactly what three specialties you offer? Sure. So I'm in what we call an interventional cardiologist. Um, and that means that when somebody's having a heart attack at 2 a.m., I'm the guy that gets called to go in, open up the artery, and put a stent in, do those types of things. So we fulfill all the regular requirements uh, to become a board-certified cardiologist. And then there's additional training, additional board certification uh, that's required even beyond just becoming a cardiologist to become an interventional cardiologist. Uh, the chef aspect of what I do uh, is interesting. So I actually uh, cook professionally before I went to medical school. So mm. I started back in the day, uh, and I'm going to give away how old I am now, so, so no laughing, but back in the day when there weren't celebrity chefs, you know, beyond <laughs> Julia Child, and people really didn't want to go into the culinary world because uh, you didn't get, get famous, you worked long hours, it's a tough industry, mm -hmm. to help pay for some of the expenses of going through college and stuff, I had to work. And so I started actually as a dishwasher and then worked my way up so that when I finished college and went off to medical school, I was actually what we'd call today an executive chef, kind of running the back of the house. And uh, one of the first books uh, that I, I wrote, The Fallacy of the Calorie, uh, attracted the attention of the dean of the College of Health at the University of Montana, uh, where I was practicing cardiology and we started to have some conversations uh, about that and uh, the end result to cut to the chase is many years later we I now teach a and I'm on faculty both at the culinary school our University of Montana is a culinary program and the College of Health so I have dual faculty appointments there and we teach uh, introduction to culinary medicine course which is a level 400 graduate level course and it just takes many years because obviously things like this and the things we're teaching we have to go through a rigorous academic process to be vetted and and be able to communicate that information and have the university behind us so that's the the long road to to how i became who i am <laughs> so your day-to-day -day job is different almost day to day you could be opening someone up there on the table on one day you could be teaching someone how to mix you know cream and sugar to make magic <laughs> and then you could teach people the the healthy side of nutrition as it relates to medicine am i right yeah uh you know and and um 
actually doing that now. So uh, I'll be on call later tonight. Uh, today I was, you know, this morning I was grading papers. Uh, then I, I was uh, doing some uh, research and rereading into what part of what we touch on in, in the course is looking at things like the blue zone. So a whole section of our course actually deals with something that a lot of food and health approaches forget. And that's the influence and the impact of non-ingredient choice to what and how we eat. Uh, so I was looking at the Blue Zones information and then uh, I'm on the road uh, for a little bit. So, you know, I brought my culinary kitchen. My culinary degree is actually in gourmet cooking and catering. Mm. So I take my little catering rig when I can and I'm in a hotel room, but I practice what I preach. So I've brought my food and I'll be, you know, cooking up my own meal uh, in just a little bit. <laughs> you must have a very unique philosophy on nutrition. You know, I would say that most fitness people's philosophy on nutrition is, does it fit your macros? <laughs> very, very basic and simple. What's your philosophy on nutrition? Well, I, I think nutrition is important. Um, so first of all, let me say that we, we address that in the class. But when we look at the links of nutrition and health, there's a couple of caveats. And, and I think, in a sense, we need to move beyond just what I would call legacy nutrition. And so when we look at the science of nutrition, actually what we find is that nutrition is a, is a very new science, right? It's maybe a hundred years old, depending on you know exactly when you wanna start the first date. Certainly we didn't uh, synthesize and discover the first vitamins until the 1920s. So we could say literally, you know, only a hundred years old. And, and I think in some ways nutrition um, is a victim of its own early successes in terms of how we approach problems in that when nutrition was first developed, we looked and we found you know, one vitamin and we looked at a deficiency disease and we fixed it with that one uh, vitamin or, or missing element and we had great success, right? Rickets and vitamin D and scurvy and vitamin C and so on and so forth. And so there was just tremendous success with what I would term a one element or a one variable uh, approach to you know, one disease entity. And that works great for deficiency diseases, but deficiency diseases aren't what we deal with today, uh, particularly in this country. And so that mindset and that approach really falls apart when we look at multifactorial diseases and disease states um, that are very chronic in nature and have to do with things like inflammation, you know, et cetera. And so nutrition is important, but it is far from the, the end game. And, and I think that mindset, which I see really carried over a lot today when people tell me, oh, a food as medicine, food as fuel, and that's the viewpoint of it. Let me you know, go into a little bit of, of what we touch on in the course. And actually we're working on rolling out our level two curriculum for culinary medicine for the, the on-campus students. And we're, we have a whole course devoted to uh, mindfulness and eating because when we look at things that can, for example, lower markers of inflammation, what we find is it's, it's not just the antioxidants we eat and this and that, it's also how we eat. Hmm. And there's a whole study uh, that's been done in what are called MBEs or mindfulness-based eating techniques. 
and the the data is compelling it's it's based on functional mr studies it's based on structural mr studies it's based on measuring things like telomeres um for those in the audience who aren't familiar telomeres basically are the caps of the dna so if, if you can if you're as old as i am and you remember tying shoelaces on your sneakers before we had velcro uh there's those little plastic uh you know things that go the end of the shoelace so the shoelace doesn't shred and fray uh, our dna has has those caps on them to protect them when they unwind and then when they go back together and, and replicate and telomeres are those caps and the longer they are in essence the younger your body is mm -hmm. and when we do things like engage in mindful eating we can actually measure telomeres and telomere lengths and show that we can affect our physiologic aging simply not just by what we eat but how we eat as well so we have to kind of go back and look at things taking into account what we've learned and continue to learn from nutrition um, but incorporate it into an approach where we understand it's about our relationship with food which is what we eat obviously and nutrition comes into play there but also how we eat when we eat where we eat with even with whom we eat all these things contribute to what i call the food experience which is our relationship to food and that's what culinary medicine really gets at and that's why it's different than just a nutritional nutrition only type approach when we look at what i think everybody wants what which is like a happy life a long life a life where we maintain our function both physically and cognitively mm -hmm. uh, what we find based on things like the harvard studies and the blue zone studies that i mentioned uh earlier is you know what's the most important thing is it what you ate is it how much money you made is it where you lived uh you know this that or the other and what we find repeatedly is it's the quality of the relationships in our lives and our relationship with food is not only a fundamental relationship all of us have but it sets a template for the other relationships in our lives if if people have food issues if they're eating garbage you know they don't feel good uh, very often they, they suffer illnesses and that affects our relationships you know with each other and the quality of those relationships ultimately impacting you know our very existence and, and our very lives mm -hmm. if you could touch a little bit on mindfulness of eating so is this the speed you ingest your food is this where you're eating how would you define mindfulness when ingesting or eating food well uh so mindfulness practice uh i divided it can be very uh and i got in, engaged in this as somebody who studied martial arts many decades ago uh there was no term for mindfulness um what, what martial we, arts did you do sorry uh no that's okay uh yeah interrupt anytime uh i i studied a few but the one that i've done the longest and continue to do is called bujinkan budo taijitsu which is a japanese style mm -hmm. and you know back in in the day that it wasn't called mindfulness we did these exercises on building focus so you didn't get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> it had a very practical application. Um, but those types of uh, activities, we can really divide into two kinds, which, um, and, and to make an analogy to your fitness folks, right? You can have a time, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm going to the gym, I'm, I'm going to work out for an hour, you know, et cetera. And 
that is a, a much more structured, what would I call formal mindfulness engagement, where you have, you know, time dedicated practice, etc. But I'm sure a lot of your your folks who are instructors tell people, hey, you can engage in fitness all the time. You know, park, don't drive around for a half hour to get that first parking spot. Mm-hmm. Go park at the back of the parking lot and walk. And when you do that several times during the day, that adds up a little bit. So that's complimentary. And that's what we call like an informal mindfulness. So to give you an example, every time I sit down to eat, I approach my food with what we call an attitude of gratitude. And it's simply to take a moment and it may be a minute, two minutes, it may be 30, 40 seconds, uh, but to shift my mental frame and, and kind of center myself be cognizant of where I am, what I'm eating, and be thankful for that. And studies have shown uh, that the act itself, what we would call the ritual of of eating food, and it doesn't matter whether you want to say the Lord's grace, whether you want to give thanks to the animals and plants, uh, whatever the activity, the details of the activity that work for you, that's much less important than the actual act. What we do is we are actually shifting our neurologic physiology uh, into one that's based on gratitude, which is what we call an oxytocin type uh, response. So that is also known as a love hormone. Mm -hmm. And where things like the dopaminergic centers of our brain, which people know as the pleasure reward system, uh, can become habituated, uh, can lead to uh, certain types of negative situations, right? Uh, oxytocin is, is positive. So that's a mother's love for the child, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, you know, ever become, although I know my mom was incredibly frustrated with me. I know, you know, she loved me up until the end. And, and that's, you know, that, that incomparable mother's love, that's, that's oxytocin. Uh, mediated experience. So we shift our centers there. And then when we look at this, what we find is when we measure, we can statistically, in a significant fashion, see a reduction in in markers of inflammation. So that's a a kind of quick example of how mindfulness applies and and how how you can do it and and do it very simple. You know, I just caution people like anything else, you know, the, the walking is good, but, you know, if you don't engage in exercise, you're not going to see the results of someone mm-hmm. who's there at the, you know, gate engaging in exercise several times a week for a sustained and dedicated practice. Uh, you know, there's, there's to make a correlate to the, the Zen Buddhist approach or the, the Buddhist approach. It's, you know, if you want to engage a little, you get a little enlightenment, you engage a lot, you know, you get uh, a, a great understanding, don't engage at all, get nothing. <laughs> That's beautiful. When you talk about mindfulness with food, are, are you suggesting if I eat something, if I eat my dinner and I chew it in two bites and I swallow it, compared to using a mindfulness approach, that food or that nutrition will be digested differently? Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah, and, and it's, it's fascinating um, because the impact that we have is not just you know, when we ingest the food and, and that's to, you know, speaking to, again, the idea that food is fuel and that's all it is. And everybody harping on percent RDAs and percent fat fat and, you know, eat carbs, don't eat carbs, etc. Missing that food experience, how we eat our attitude has a huge impact 
So it's going to affect our inflammation. It's going to affect our mental state. It's going to therefore also affect our emotional state. Well, our emotional state has a, a direct impact into our gut microbiome, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the 100 trillion bacteria that we know of. There are probably yeast, viruses, protozoa that we have yet to even explore that are in our gut. And that's going to affect um, how we metabolize food. It's going to affect the um, results of that digestive process. Uh, we're finding the gut microbiome is so powerful. It really is a symbiotic organ. So to give you an example, the gut bacteria can secrete compounds, short chain fatty acids in the large intestine, which go back up to our brain and tell us, for example, we're full and to stop eating so it gets a little spooky when you talk about it like that because it's like well if the bacteria are signaling my brain to stop eating like who's in charge here yeah. um and what we have to realize and and this is a a fundamental paradigm shift that we really emphasize in culinary medicine and why this approach is different than legacy nutrition you have to view your body not as an isolated machine, but as an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And within the realm of medicine, we're learning that these bacteria influence our mood. They're in constant communication. So if I was to draw a blood sample from you right now, I would find that about 40% of the communication molecules that circulate throughout the blood are derived from the gut. And that includes the gut bacteria. So via the enteric nervous plexus, the, the vagus uh, nervous system, the gut's in constant communication with the brain that way, mm. constant communication with the entire body through all these communication molecules. So uh, very, very powerful. And yeah, um, how we eat uh, has direct consequence. Again, how you respond to that food, we're starting to learn affects us in terms of epigenetics. Mm -hmm. Right. So epigenetics uh, and, and I was speaking with uh, uh, another uh, physician over the weekend about this is incredibly fascinating because often and I think particularly in like fitness and health, we come down to looking at it and say, well, is it nurture or nature? Right. Is it is it the environment influencing us or is it something genetic we're born with? Well, you know, in, in one of the books, um, I think it was Fallacy of the Calorie, we talked about certain disease states that only really manifest if the environment is correct. So instead of saying these are disease causing genes, because they don't always cause disease, disease, they need the environment. We now realize that in the study of epigenetics, for example, how we interact with the environment, including the food we eat, how and where we eat it, can turn on or turn off certain genes. So our gene expression um, is dependent on how we, as an ecosystem, interact with our environment. Um, in a very philosophical sense, what we talk about in culinary medicine is we're interconnected. There's an interconnectedness to all things. And to look at us in isolation um, is to neglect the powerful impact, um, the very fact that the sum you know, whole is greater than just the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. And and so, yeah, to, that long-winded answer to your question is that's exactly what we're learning. I love having snippets or takeaways for the audience, simple things. So from my understanding, this is fitness people. Cortisol, you know, if cortisol is high all the time, not so great for people. And then at the Correct. same time, C-reactive protein, that's your inflammatory marker, right? So if I eat from food and 
and those two things go up, do you have a simple takeaway that someone could do to practice mindful eating that could lower those or, or minimize those? Is this a bre- like a breathing or chewing multiple times? It's, it's uh, about focus. It, you know, it's about being here in the moment. So according to a Harvard study, about 47% of the time we are alive, of our lives, we are either worrying about something that happened in the past we can't change or fretting about something in the future mm-hmm. that may never happen. Um, so mindful eating is about being here and being aware in the present and actually tasting our food, mm-hmm. interacting with that food. So my takeaway is if you're going to eat, um, don't do what you just said, which is at the cubicle, grabbing a sandwich while I'm trying to multitask. It turns out multitasking is a big illusion. We, we can actually cannot multitask. Mm-hmm. All we do is put more slices into the cake. Uh, we have one cake of attention. Uh, we can either focus all our attention onto something and be present in that. Um, and athletes, fitness people out there, for many people, that's what they call the zone, right? You're in that moment, and you don't know how you are sinking that basketball from three-point range time after time after again. You are just in sync, in the flow. That That is a form of, of mindfulness. You're just in the groove. Um, we've all been there for, for certain things. So what I, I suggest is you know, don't eat while you're trying to do something else. Don't eat when you're angry, right? An old Sufi saying, say, food eaten in anger turns into poison in the stomach. And we have a lot to learn from our ancient forebears. And there is some practical wisdom there. So get yourself in the right frame. Stop it before you eat. If it's 30 seconds, a minute, Mm -hmm. two minutes, change your mindset. Engage your food with an attitude of gratitude and taste it. That's what enjoying about food is. So enjoy your food, enjoy your meal. If you have the opportunity to enjoy it with a loved one or share it, even better. Mm -hmm. And it's really, that's culinary medicine and practical application. It's as simple as that. So just slowing down, enjoying your food, not doing it under stressful situations with people you love, you can get more out of that food to be healthier. Now, when you said slice of cake and you said zone, you must have seen me eating cake before. <laughs> Your book, Fallacy of a Calorie. Everyone thinks a calorie is the same. In my world of the fitness industry, it comes down to calories in, calories out. That's all that matters if it fits your macros. You don't agree. And he says very much uh, deeply into your book. Would you talk about, I want to hear you talk about the origin of the calorie. I've heard that story before from you. I just want the audience to hear you talk about where calories come from. Sure. So this is a great example how something kind of enters into the, the public consciousness and gets repeated often enough that it, it becomes confounded with something else and then accepted as wisdom. So the idea that, you know, it's all about the calories. So the calorie came about in uh, with the Industrial Revolution. The calorie has nothing really to do with food as its origin. It was all about the steam engine and the Industrial Revolution. And most people think of calorie as a measure of energy, which it's, which it's actually not. The, the proper measure of energy is our joules. So a calorie is the amount of heat it's actually a measure of heat the act the measure the amount of heat required to raise you know uh, a, a gram or a kilogram uh, of water one degree celsius at one atmosphere of pressure and that's the technical 
definition of a calorie. And it came about with use in the Industrial Revolution because they were trying to get increase the efficiency of a steam engine. So if I burn coal, it has more caloric value than wood. And so it requires less coal to operate my steam engine. That's a more efficient form of fuel uh, I, I can carry, right? Which is why it was originally wood and then they switched to coal to, to power the steam engines. Uh, more efficient fuel. At that same time, and this was around the 1860s, there was an American studying this phenomenon in Germany. His name was Wilbur Atwater. And at the time in the 1860s, a lot of work was still being done by uh, animals, draft animals, you know, on farms and by people. And so their idea was, well, if we look at the human body as a machine, again, food as fuel idea, is there something cheap that has lots of calories that we can give people so that they can be we can feed them something cheap and we can get a lot of work out of them whether it be a person or an animal and that was the idea in the 1860s and outwater compiled the caloric value of food it's something called uh you know the atwater guide uh, which actually we still use and they figured that out by taking the item of food and putting in something called a bomb calorimeter, which basically incinerates it, and then measure how much heat was produced. Mm -hmm. Well, I think everyone, no matter their opinion on one side or the other, in terms of calories, food as fuel, etc. I know we're talking about controversial things, which is great. I think everyone would agree that's not how we metabolize food. You know, unless you're saw on the grate from Lord of the Rings, you you don't incinerate. You know. Every, everything you eat so uh we don't actually even do that anymore to get an accurate measure of a calorie uh what we do is we just assume you know four grams uh you know for proteins carbs nine for fats seven for alcohol etc um so actually it's it's more even of a guesstimate it's not mm -hmm. different fats do have different caloric values we kind of lump them together and we say you know this thing's made of this percent carbs, that's so many calories, etc. But we ne ne neglect the efficiency of extraction. So how efficient are we at extracting that? For example, if you chug a raw egg, you'll extract about 50% of your usable calories out of it. If you cook that egg, you're going to extract much, much more. Uh, you become much more efficient. Um, actually, that's, so, why, that's why Rocky lost in Rocky 3. That's right. He was eating them all raw. He was, yeah, he was eating them all he raw. a little more money come Rocky 4 <laughs> and he was, he was eating them cooked. Yeah, and, and, and so that's, that's a great example. I mean, there, there's the difference right there. So uh, the, the idea that we have a – so that became part of the conversation in the 1860s, and everyone in 1860 and, you know, understood that's what they were looking at. But over the years, it's become conflated to mean, oh, it has less calories. That means it's better for me. It's more healthy. As you can see from our conversation, the, the caloric value has nothing to do with the nutritional value, you know, of the food uh, itself. So – the idea that a calorie from a candy bar and a calorie from an apple are the same in terms of how we process that is simply balderdash and, and um, silliness. Uh, you know, I, I, it, it, it leads to a logical conclusion when people 
get on that bandwagon that you know a diet soda at zero calories is the most healthful thing we can consume and and we know that that's not true because the artificial sweeteners actually negatively change our gut microbiome and make us more likely to become obese and develop diabetes and uh develop an inflammatory state uh then then you know consuming something else this was sorry this was literally brought up today with a client talking about the negative or the zero calories using like a diet coke or diet pepsi was consuming this on a regular basis and then started not being able to digest other foods. Foods they could digest regularly. Then they were on the pop plan for a while. And now when they go back, they're like, it upsets my stomach. Is it possible that those fake sugars can affect the way you digest regular foods or real foods? Uh, I, I don't think it's, it's any kind of reach because we know, um, and this was published in Nature, uh, a couple of years ago using um, a mouse model and showed that uh, showed a couple of things. One, it negatively changes the bacteria in your gut, right? So that's going to affect how you feel. That's going to, ha- that's our organ, right? So basically to go back to the ecosystem model, um, imagine us as, as, you know, an ecosystem, we're a lake, you know, drinking that artificial sweetener is like, you know, pouring gasoline in the pond. Right. It's going to affect what grows, how it grows, the health of that ecosystem. So it's going to affect everything downstream. It makes us more likely to become obese, believe it or not, more likely to uh, suffer disability disease like heart attacks, diabetes, etc. When we consume those artificial sweeteners because they they change our gut bacteria so you know absolutely um that is something that you know i definitely invite uh, you know encourage people to avoid what we've really learned um and one of the things that we supply all the data for this you know uh, there's a lot to get into in the course but the long and short take home right is the more you can eat natural food that's uh, come straight from mother nature, fresh, authentic, real food. And unless you avoid, and the more you avoid what we do to it in terms of processing and ultra processing, the better it is for you and the healthier you'll be. Yeah. I've got two boys. I got a, I got a four year old and I got a six year old named Michael and Jackson. <laughs> that's another podcast. Conversation. <laughs> so I got my two little boys, six and four. And when we feed them certain foods versus candy, I know, right, without even like looking at the label, the candy calorically would be higher. But when they consume the candy, they're hungrier sooner than if I gave them some fruits or vegetables, even though they're eating less calories. Am I right to say that that's an example that not all calories are the same? Yeah, uh, well, exactly, right? And, and we see that those effects, and there's actually some great work done uh, on a... Uh, where they did multiple, they took the same group and they put them through sort of multiple experiments. And what they did is they had the same amount of calories, but the calories came from different sources. So they would, you know, one would be like a low fat, one would be a low carb. And then they looked at things and different measures. And what we found was that they affected our inflammation system in different ways. Mm -hmm. So our body reacted differently to that. And that's, you know, a clear cut example of of how a calorie is not a calorie is not a calorie. Mm -hmm. And so I really encourage people to get out of this mindset uh, of calories. For example, uh, we've, I'm sure as fitness folks, your audience has heard about the Mediterranean diet and the idea that, uh, you know, it's a healthful, um, you know, 
approach to food. Well, the Mediterranean diet tends to be higher in, in calories than the uh, standard American diet, or as I call it, the SAD. Mm -hmm. And yet people are healthier on it. Eating actually has a higher percentage of fat than the modern Western diet, believe it higher or not. Higher sodium too, doesn't it? Uh, traditional one does, yes. Right. Um, it solves a whole other myth we could bust. We could spend a whole podcast on that. Um, and, and yet people, when we look at uh, their weight, uh, it tends to be lower, less obesity on the Mediterranean diet, even though we're not restricting what or how much they eat. And, and that's, you know, I, I think anytime you take people and you try to restrict things, so many calories, can't have this, can't have that, um, we're naturally omnivores. And so it becomes difficult and it becomes difficult from a philosophical approach. As human beings, we are social creatures. We're social primates. Mm -hmm. Food was what like made us human beings. So, you know, your ancestors, my ancestors, a couple hundred thousand years ago, we're sitting around, you know, the campfire and, you know, my ancestor, maybe the first chef says, Hey, Chris, uh, how, Chris's forebear, you know, how about having a Macedon burger and some Macedon ribs? And we sit there and we start eating and, and we interact. And, and so food for the human species is a social currency. It's a form of pleasure. People want to enjoy food. Mm -hmm. And I, I as a physician, uh, or as a food health expert, tell them, you must eat this, don't eat that, then it becomes work. Nobody, and I swear nobody wants to work at eating, something we intrinsically, you know, in our DNA want to have be a fun, pleasurable experience turn into work that's not pleasurable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why 95% of all diets fail within five years. And that's been repeated many, many times, and the data is, you know, very solid on that. 100%. You, you said the F word back there, and I don't mean fun. You said, <laughs> you said fat. Yes. Now, you're a cardiologist. So uh, over here in Canada, on average, any cardiologist that I've you know, talked to, clientele of mine or myself, fat is bad. Fat is really bad. We need to lower our fat, reduce our fat, reduce our cholesterol. You, you don't think that way, do you? No, because the studies have clearly shown that dietary cholesterol has like zero impact on blood lipids. Okay. So I wrote about that. Um, I think fallacy of the calorie came out in 2014 and boy, did I catch some grief, mm -hmm. but that's where the data led me. Uh, a few years ago in the United States, our governmental regulations, you know, guidelines came out and they took away the dietary daily recommendation for cholesterol consumption. And the reason was they said, there's no data for this. It, do, it, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, Americans actually did drop their daily cholesterol intake by about 50% from about 600 milligrams a day to under 300. There's no change. What do we get? We got in America, we got fatter and more diabetic, which means more heart disease, et cetera. So the way our physiology works, dietary cholesterol just doesn't you know, impact um, our, our blood lipid levels. And in fact, multiple studies have since been uh, performed and published in scientific journals showing that people who eat eggs up to uh, even the, the most recent I saw was, you know, an egg a day, so seven eggs a week, 
uh, had a much better blood lipid profile than people who didn't eat eggs at all. Mm-hmm. So that's the exact opposite of what we've been telling people. Yeah. And, and so part of this, is, again, goes to the fact that these broad classifications of foods like fats, carbs, proteins, they really don't mean much of anything in our modern world. They say, hey, Chef Dr. Mike, come on, what are you talking about? And, and I'll, I'll give you, you know, a, a great uh, example, uh, which was work performed by uh, University of Brazil. And, and what they did is they said, you know, there's fat that I'll get if I have a, a, a grass finished, you know, bison steak. Right? I'm, I'm getting animal meat, I'm getting fat, I'm getting saturated fat. And then there's, you know, um, fat from a drive through burger, highly processed, adulterated meat. We tend to think red meat, saturated fat, we lump them all together. Um, what they did was they used something called the NOVA classification, which actually looks at our risk of developing disability and disease, looking at the foods we eat based on their level of processing. And, and so mm-hmm. they have four classifications with four being ultra processed foods. And man, you know, you can draw an arrow through that correlation between the level of adulteration and ultra processing and the, the risk of ill health. And so fats, for example, um, are we use them, we have essential fatty acids, right? Um, you know, omega-3s, those are fats. Uh, we tell everybody to eat them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's a whole lot that goes on there. But to, to just say don't eat fats or don't even eat saturated fatty acids, we go through this in the course. It kind of has its own chapter because it is such an area of controversy. But there have been multiple meta-analyses done. So we're looking at, you know, millions of, of people in terms of these studies showing that when we look at the saturated fat, it does not correlate to cardiovascular disease. It doesn't increase your risk of, of a heart attack, diabetes, etc. But when we look at your consumption of ultra-processed foods, oh my gosh, that is a different story. Mm-hmm. And so again, this is part of that, that perspective paradigm shift that, that we want to bring about with culinary medicine where we stop looking at foods the old-fashioned way, you know, 200 years ago, that that made a lot of sense, right? Because all the food, you know, a chicken was a chicken. You know, grew up on a farm and scratched around. It ate like chicken stuff, which is seed <laughs> and bugs and you know all the all those other things. Yeah. But today, a chicken's not a chicken. There's a, a a processed McNugget that has 40 different ingredients in it. And, you know, there's a chicken I get from down the road and, you know, I cook in my kitchen. Mm -hmm. Um, So saying chicken or poultry even, what does that mean? Um, We've got to go back and look at the quality of our food. We never had to pay attention to it before because it really didn't matter Mm -hmm. quite as much in the history of humankind. Less processed foods. Right. It was as much of an issue. Absolutely. And, And now, at least in the U.S., you know, 60, more than 60% of the American diet is ultra processed foods, you know, and, and people often ask, they say, well, you know, if I want to start doing culinary medicine, you know, how are you going to help me? Cause I love pizza. I was like, dude, I love pizza too. Mm-hmm. Every Friday in my house, when I'm home, it's pizza Friday, mm-hmm. pizza, the way I make it, one of the most helpful, it's organic, you know, ancient grain, slow ferment, you know, pizza dough, it's tomatoes. That's mm-hmm. it. You know, we, we can our tomatoes 
from our garden in the summer or you what we get them. from farmers markets so we can have them in the winter. Yeah. Um, and and it's uh, organic local mozzarella cheese. And you know, I put some basil, you know, on mine for margarita. Um, but but an industrial pizza, you know, you're getting from delivered or picking up in the grocery store. That's one of the ten worst foods you can eat. So to say pizza, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And again, we we just have to shift our thinking to, you know, how is it made? Um, what's the quality of the ingredients instead of these, you know, classifications that include, you know, everything from, you know, chef crafted artisanal food to mass produced garbage. Mm-hmm. And, and we lump them all together. And and I think that is really one of the reasons, too, there's so much confusion in these food guidelines with it that seem to change every week. I'm here in Ottawa. We have the Heart Institute of Canada. It's 20 kilometers from my house right now. And, you know, you go down there, you, you could be healthy. They could do some blood work on you. All of a sudden it comes back. You know, your HDL is high. So you have high cholesterol, but your body fat percentage is low. Inflammatory markers are low. And then the advice that was given, and these are clientele that I would have, the advice is, you know, you need to reduce your cholesterol. You need to stop eating eggs, reduce red meat. These are people who have lost weight and every other marker had gone down. All their other markers went down and then HDL goes up. Why is that advice still being given out? Because I'm not talking like 30 years ago. This is talking 2020, 2021. Well, a couple of things. One, so if you're HDL, that's the good cholesterol. So actually you want that number up. The bad cholesterol is the LDL. But um, unfortunately, it gets even more complicated than that. So there are two types of LDL. There's what we call large type LDL or type A LDL. And there's uh, what we call type B or small dense uh, LDL, which is, which is B. We can remember B for bad. Mm-hmm. And the way to remember this is uh, as part of the inflammation process, these cholesterol molecules are uh, – population dependent so it's it's a concentration gradient um that that drives them and think of ldl cholesterol right we even say that ldl cholesterol what does that mean it's just a number that tells us in this fraction of blood that we're measuring there's this much of the uh, of it is is cholesterol that goes into that ldl it doesn't it's like saying i have a pound of plastic that's all we know We've got a pound of LDL. Well, with that pound of plastic, I can make 10 beach balls, which is your type A large LDL molecule, or I can make 100,000 ping pong balls, which is your type B or or bad Mm -hmm. LDL. And so when you have 100,000 of those type B LDL, they're like teenagers in your house, you know, as they come to the party, uh, which you may have to deal with having some young kids growing up in, in trouble years. rises. The trouble rises. Yeah, it, it's never a good thing, right? And the damage to the house uh, from the party is directly proportional to the number of teenagers that attended the, the party. Um, <laughs> analogy I've heard in a long time. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so so that, that kind of uh, gives you um, an idea of the mechanism 
systems. Uh, so one thing, uh, because that actually advice, actually my brother got that same advice from his physician in, in Pennsylvania. And I said, you know, before you, and he wanted to put him on a medication, a statin medication. Mm -hmm. Now remember that around 30% or more of people who take statin medication who otherwise would not develop diabetes will develop diabetes. So that is a side effect of statin medications. There's a, a, a higher likelihood there's a risk of developing diabetes, which then in turn having diabetes makes it a uh, catch 22. Yeah, well, it, it, having diabetes is a reason for somebody to be on a statin drug because they're at increased mm -hmm. risk. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that leads me to answer the next part of the question, which is why is this advice still going, giving out, being given out? You know, oh, and finish the story. My brother, I had his what they call fractionate the LDL, and it came back that his LDL was all type A, which is the good kind. And so he did not go on a statin medication, um, and he had to make his doctor send away that test. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, I would have just put him on one. I, I, there's one of the, the, the sayings I have is that, you know, when the people in, who are selling you the cure are in charge of the disease, that's never a good thing. And so we have a lot of forces. Um, I certainly meet up with them every day because I, I can only get the word out thanks to people like you who are interested in helping me share it. Modern uh, agribusiness is, is not interested in us promoting real foods that are not part of the, you know, animal CAFO, the monocrop, um, you know, heavy pesticide, heavy fertilizer use group. So we're working against big food, big snack, um, et cetera. And, and these are powerful, certainly in the United States. If McDonald's alone, so forget all the rest of big food, we'll just take one, you know, one component of that, one member of that group, McDonald's. If McDonald's was a country, it would have the 90th largest GDP on earth. So McDonald's goes into developing nations and goes into countries. They, they make more than that country produces in a GDP in a year. These are, these are powerful entities. Mm -hmm. um, I talked about Brazil developing the NOVA classification. One reason they did that is Brazil actually went to the United Nations um, along with other countries and at, petitioned the U.S. to please ask our corporations, big food, big snack, big drink, to leave because they were seeing a shift in their population from really pre being pretty healthy to incredible rates of obesity and diabetes. They were becoming America. So these McDonald's were popping up in Brazil. Yeah. And, and, and uh, so they went to the United Nations and the U.S. one, yeah, it's a company. We can't do anything about it. You're on your own. Yeah. And so that was one of the driving forces for like the University of Brazil to, to collect data and show this correlation between consuming this type of diet and the, the effects on individuals in the population. We don't hear a lot about, I talk to people about NOVA classification, which is adopted by the United Nations and their data produced in Brazil has been replicated in many other countries across the world. And people know nothing about it. And why do you think that is? You know, again, it's the, it's the same groups we're, we're going up against. Mm. Nobody's gonna, you know, sponsor what I'm talking about here on mainstream media, because there's no, they're not going to run commercials for Kraft Macaroni Cheese when Chef Dr. Mike is talking about this. Yeah. Um, those are the realities. Um, you know, can we get around them? Of course, thanks to people like, like you. But, you know, these, these are the realities um, 
and you ask why and, and many people in in healthcare uh, different aspects of healthcare for different reasons aren't receptive to this i mean there are you know uh careers that have been built on the the lipid hypothesis and you can't eat saturated fat when you look at the, and I did, the latest guidelines that were published by the American uh, Heart Association, those are derived from the working group recommendations from the American College of Cardiology. Uh, when I read that task force report, which um, I will save your readers from and your listeners from because it's incredibly boring, uh, they only need to go to the last page because the entire half of the last page were financial disclosures from the people writing the recommendations for things like uh, the Pritikin group, which advocates no saturated fat, all the way up to being on the McDonald's Global Advisory Food Board. Uh, so, you know, there's there's the answer. And I know it sounds like conspiracy theory and people uh, kind of shake their heads and, oh, you know, nobody. But these are the facts. Um, so that's that's why it takes a long time for this to trickle down. Um, but it is. It is getting there simply because we have the, the, the facts on our side. We have the truth. As I said, years ago, I wrote about cholesterol. Eventually, the government came around and said, you know what? They didn't say this, but they implied. Chef Dr. Mike is right. You know, mm -hmm. these things are. Uh, there is no evidence for this. So, you know, it's it's the egg beaters, the egg substitutes you were eating was worse in every respect than eating a farm fresh egg. But still, you know, Chris, we don't look at the difference between an industrial egg and, you know, an organic free range egg. When we look at the science and we find there's higher levels of CLA, there's much more uh, omega-3s, the omega-6, omega-3 ratios are different. Um, we realize what every chef knows, these aren't the same food because they don't taste the same, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, so. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people are, People want to be healthy. People want to be healthier. I'm seeing the shift. I've been doing this 15 years. And I'm seeing people are coming in. And they want to know what to do. I'm in the health pre prevention and disease prevention field, I guess I'd call it. People want to be healthier. But then they go to the grocery store and they see, well, here is uh, low sodium. Here's low fat. It's a blue label. It's got to be good for you. Or they talk to a physician who says, get off the eggs. They're bad for you. You need to eat some of this stuff here instead. People want to be healthier. What advice would you give someone who said, I, I, I want to live as long as I can and be as healthy as I can? What's one thing I should do for, with my nutrition? Um, well, I, I'd say, you know, forget about nutrition, um, which is totally heretical. But, you know, let's think about um, eating real food that's delicious. And the caveat to that is certainly in America, and 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 we are, and, and I think you're definitely right. You are, and people who want to do this, this is preventive medicine. But I'm going to jump in with a with another fun fact uh, for the audience. It's also a cure. It's not just prevention. So we 90 to 95 percent of the cases of diabetes in the United States, at least, uh, are type two diabetes. Over 90% of cases of type 2 diabetes are preventable with lifestyle modification, like what you have people do by engaging in some exercise. And I want to take a moment, step back, and emphasize we're talking food today, but exercise, you know, and working out and becoming fit and physically active is incredibly important. Um, and I, I don't want to kind of say it's all about the food. That's just what 
what I focus on and what we're focusing on today. But that's that's important. Uh, and and inter interventions like culinary medicine. And for people who already have type 2 diabetes, and this was published just this summer past uh, in the British Medical Journal in a UK study, 60% of people who already had type 2 diabetes reversed it with lifestyle modification like culinary medicine you know, and, and increased activity. Reverse it. That means that they didn't have it anymore. That's a medical ease for they cured themselves. Mm -hmm. 60, all we do, all I see is another advertisement for another pharmaceutical mm -hmm. for type to treat type 2 diabetes. And and I'll share a quick story. A, a, a friend of mine, I was helping him. He was, he's a chef and he contracted diabetes and then went back to uh, not ordering everything pre-processed. And uh, so I was involved in helping him set up a show where he wanted to basically help people with non-pharmacologic approaches for their diabetes. And we went to the pharmaceutical companies and although they talk a good game to the public, not one of them would give this guy, it wasn't me asking, I was serving for introductions for him, would, would not one of them would give this guy a dime to show people how to you know, cure diabetes or prevent it, but they were willing to give him full sponsorship for a truck which would go and screen people for diabetes so they could get new customers mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so uh, there, there's a, just another you know another example um, you know right there that what we're told you know in these sorts of oh you know we're we're here for your health and, and whatnot um, you know again to, to be a little cynical but having been in the medical business my entire life um, follow the money and, and you'll find, you know, the real motivation. So for, for people who are, are looking, um, if you're eating a lot of ultra processed food, you're suffering from addiction, a form of food addiction. You have to break that. And there are ways that, that people can do that. Once you start eating food, follow your taste buds. Because I've had people, um, you know, kind of follow our prescription. And Chris, it, it's exactly you know, um, you know, it reminds me in uh, many, many ways of what happens when somebody stops smoking. So I finally get somebody to stop smoking. They'll come back in my office and I'll go, Doc, I can't even walk, you know, outside of a room where somebody's been smoking because I smell it and it makes me sick. Yeah. How is I smoking two packs a day? Mm -hmm. I, 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 now I can't even smell that stuff now and it repulses me. And in an analogous fashion, I've had some people say, you know, I can't even walk into a fast food place anymore because I smell that grease mm -hmm. and, and it's unappetizing. Yet I used to go through the drive through two and three times a day. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? The addiction. We, yeah. And so once we start to taste real food, I, I was actually writing this to a colleague this morning. It, it's, it's we're upgrading people to first class. They will never want to go back behind the curtain in you know tasteless economy main cabin ever again once they've experienced you know first class food and you know you don't have to be a michelin star chef to enjoy it but it is what we talked on earlier it is taking the time to enjoy that food mm -hmm. establish a relationship with what you eat where it comes from um engage that experience you know um there are people now and i'm one of them if, unless I have my those summer tomatoes canned, when my 
tomatoes are out of season, I don't buy them. I don't eat them. Yeah. They don't, my, my dad said the same thing. My, my dad, dad is a wise tomatoes. man. <laughs> well, he said the tomatoes today that he eats don't taste like the tomatoes when he was a kid. And they he said, I don't like them. I don't like yep. them anymore. And he's buying the grocery store ones compared to the ones that, you know, his mom was growing yep. back in the 50s. Well, that's exactly right. I had somebody else, uh, I was reading that they did the same thing and they were tasting what we were calling real eggs before. Mm -hmm. And this was an older person and their response is, oh my gosh, this tastes like the real thing again. Yeah. And so even, and, and again, um, I don't buy grocery store eggs because I have a, you know, a guy I know and I, I tasted his eggs and he's a little OCD about his chickens that he actually changes the field where mm -hmm. they, where they eat. The so they don't, yeah. So they're always eating, you know, fresh grubs and seeds and stuff like that. And it's part of a sustainable farm. Um, but what, you know, when I've tasted his eggs, I was like, oh my gosh, the flavor in these things is incredible. So I don't eat eggs, you know, if I go out somewhere and they're ordering those, you know, commercial things because they have no flavor to them. Mm -hmm. So if people will take the time to taste and then follow your taste buds and you don't, you know, have to eat kale because somebody told you it's healthy. But if you love the kale in Italian wedding soup, mm -hmm. then have a bowl, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so so stop making it work that's the chef side of me speaking now and that's the other aspect that's the culinary and culinary medicine right food is about pleasure food is about fun food is about relationships food's about being a human being um you know in in therapy the romantic dinner um and those who do marriage counseling is still one of the their go-to things right to repair a relationship a human relationship they have people go eat together mm -hmm. um and I'm not saying, you know, sharing a meal is going to, you know, cure the world of all its ills, but it's a hell of a good place to start. And you know, many, and how many people in this COVID pandemic right now would not want to sit down and have a meal with a friend or a family member, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, sage advice, Chris. Sage advice. We do. We do that here in my house. Here, my boys help us make, make food. You know, they get up there and they chop some of the stuff up. It's a, it's an activity. It's a family activity now. My wife's a phenomenal cook. She, she might even impress you. <laughs> Well, is that a is that a dinner invitation if I'm up in Ottawa? If you are ever in Ottawa, my friend, if you do you do dessert, we'll do dinner. You do dessert. <laughs> okay. Well, that's what we need to do. We need to get those folks at the Ottawa Heart Center to give me a call, and we'll help them start a real culinary medicine program. Because Canada, I have a bunch of friends in in Canada, and of course I'm in Montana, mm -hmm. so we go uh, there up in Alberta, uh, up near Calgary. Yep. And um, we we haven't been able to visit them for a while, but we used to uh, go up there uh, at least once a year. And my gosh, the abundance of incredible you know resources in terms of food that you guys have up there. Oh, yeah, wow, Alberta, yeah. Wow, you yeah. know that is great stuff you guys have up there. Yeah, lots of space to grow lots of animals. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. Mike, I'll, I'll just I just want to end it on one quick note. I want to know what is your go-to? What's your favorite meal that you make for yourself? I mean, obviously you're a professional chef, <laughs> but what's your? You're like my last meal. It's going to be this. Um, okay, so what I usually cook, um, I, I recommend people go, and I try to do seasonal. Mm -hmm. So you know, right now, finally, I don't know about you guys, 
the snow's finally starting to melt. So we're getting, you know, those first bits of, of early spring foods of asparagus and pea shoots and things like that. Um, during the winter, it was a lot of root vegetables and, you know, beans and things like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get springy, um, you know, in, in what I love to do. The go-to meal, um, which I, if I'm, you know, if I have to impress somebody, that I, I do is risotto. Um, and the quick story behind the risotto is that uh, I was in a Gordon Ramsay restaurant uh, as a patron. It was our honeymoon. And so we booked the chef's table at uh, Petrus. And Gordon has since sold it, but at that time it was co-owned by him and Marcus Waring, who's another Michelin, they're Michelin star chef. So they, they know what they're doing, right? And, and neither of them was there cooking for us. Uh, but the two chefs, chef de cuisines who were there were phenomenal. And so they would come out and tell us, you know, here's, we're cooking this, we're cooking that. And I was engaging in conversation. And one of the chefs, like, he goes, you seem to know a lot about food. And I was like, yeah, you know, I know a little bit. I mean, these are Michelin star chefs, if I haven't said that before. And they go, well, um, you know, can you cook a risotto? I was like, yeah, I could cook a risotto. They said, great, come on back. <laughs> and before I knew it, I had an apron on and like a commie, you know, I was back there making some black, black truffle risotto. For anyone who's ever watched Hell's Kitchen, I know exactly how those people feel now. Because there I was in a Michelin star restaurant making black truffle risotto for the past. And I hear, how long on the truffle? It's like, three minutes, chef. <laughs> you know, and then it's like, truffle coming to the pass. And, and I had a little caddy corner where my station was. So I walked around, I brought up to the pass, I go back to my station, and then I peek around the corner, you know, to see him. And I see the chef tasting it, and then he stops, and he does this, and he looks right at me, and I was like, oh, <laughs> damn. And then he tastes it, and he's still looking right at me, and he goes, send it. And I was like, okay, I made risotto that made the pass in a Michelin two-star restaurant. I know when I serve it to people that, you know, that's one recipe I've got down. So that's why that's why that's my go to recipe and risotto with homemade, you know, chicken stock or vegetarian stock, however you want to do it. Uh, real stuff that that's a, uh, that is a great meal. I will make sure to have those ingredients. If <laughs> so, so many golden nuggets today. So much to take away from our, our listeners. I'm going to link all your contact information. You mentioned many times that you've got this course, you're teaching this course at the university, it is also online. So as a fitness professional, could this be something that I could take? Oh, absolutely. Um, and in fact, we've had some fitness professionals, culinary professionals, and physicians graduate. This is the same uh, three-credit class that I teach, just an online version of it. Uh, but when you complete the class, you will get a micro-credential uh, from the University of Montana for level one certification in culinary medicine. So as somebody in the fitness industry, that gives you a whole, you know, another level of um, veracity and credibility when you talk to your clients, you know, about food. And you can use that in advertising because mm -hmm. that micro-credential is something they can go check on at at a third party vendor. So they go to credly.com, they look you up, they see you have that credential and it tells them all the things you learned in our class. So awesome. it can be very valuable for, for fitness folks uh, uh, to get out there and, and get that and add that to their skill set. 
Phenomenal. And, and as fitness professionals, we, we train people. We, we need to have a little bit of education and nutrition. And everything you said today just speaks to myself and speaks to probably the majority of people on this podcast. So formally, I would like to say thank you for taking the time to come thank on you. the Project Fitness Podcast. We will be spreading your message as much as we can. And hopefully in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, <laughs> United States and Canada are actually healthier <laughs> countries than what they currently are now. Awesome. So thank you so much today. Yeah, you bring up a good point. Not one country that's seen an increase in obesity and diabetes has been able to reverse it yet. We're going to change that. Love it. Love it. Great way to end it. Thank you so much today, Mike. Have a good one, my friend. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure. Never stop learning because life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast and your mission is to help other people, please share this podcast with them. And a reminder, we will be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it.